calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. The primary sources of investment return and long-term beta, downside risks and fat tails in asset allocation, market anomalies relating to size, value, and momentum, as well as portfolio implementation and trading. These are the topics of our discussion today. I'm Sam Lum from the CFA Institute Asia Pacific Regional Office in Hong Kong, and joining us today is Dr. Pang Chang, CEO of Asia X Japan at Dimensional Fund Advisors. Dr. Chan, thanks for being here with us today. One of the key things that wealth owners need to think carefully about when designing investment programs and managing portfolios is what the primary sources of investment returns are. The conventional wisdom is that stocks generally outperform bonds and cash in the long term. But equity risk premium that drives long-term stock returns has been called into questions once again since the global financial crisis. In rethinking the equity risk premium, what is your view on the long-term expected returns on stocks compared to bonds and other types of assets? Uh, I think um, stocks will, over time, over long period of time, mm -hmm. will outperform bonds and cash, mm -hmm. um, particularly in today's low interest rate environment, mm -hmm. uh, where um, there's a lot of uh, uh, liquidity in the market uh, pushing the, uh, the, the yield on fixed income instrument to historical lows. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to imagine that these fixed income instrument, whether it's uh, bonds or cash, uh, will generate um, returns anywhere close to what we have experienced in the past 30 to 20, 20 to 30 years. Uh, when we, by and large, have a declining interest rate environment, not only we enjoyed a higher mm -hmm. interest rate um, uh, mm -hmm. during this period, but also uh, that declining interest rate environment produced a lot of capital gains uh, yeah. for fixed income. Uh, so I think going forward, um, you know, stock will, um, uh, over time, will do uh, better uh, than uh, bonds and cash. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean that stock is no risk. And uh, from investors, uh, you should put all your money into stocks. That's certainly not the case. Um, to your point, stock is very risky. And, mm -hmm. and the, uh, the global financial crisis during 2008 and 2009 uh, certainly illustrated um, uh, that point. Um, mm -hmm. And many people, I think, um, confuse uh, about the, the risk of stock um, uh, during that period uh, compared to, uh, you know, long-term and what the potential gains are. Uh, I think what the global financial crisis uh, call into question is not whether stock will outperform bonds or cash over time. I think that uh, that's still very much valid if you look at historical data or you look at the current 
um, uh, interest mm -hmm. rate and bond yield, stock dividend, evaluation, all of these things. I think what really called into question are some of the traditional measures we've been using to evaluate the relative riskiness of stocks versus bonds versus cash. Um, and we believe, um, and I certainly believe that um, if as an investor, whether you're an institutional investor or individual investor, um, if you continue to use more traditional type of risk management, such as you know, volatility or, or, or beta, um, uh, these are n not enough. And specifically, uh, they underestimate uh, the amount of risk uh, that inherently in uh, many of the uh, asset classes uh, or investment instruments. Speaking of risk measures, downside risks and fat tails that incorporate skewness and kurtosis seems to be getting popular these days. How should investors include these in the asset allocation exercise? Um, we, you know, we have done, and there's many people have done a lot of work on this topic, uh, looking at different risk measures, and it, it, it has been in existence for many, many years. Um, but people didn't pay, you know, this is a typical <laughs> situation, people does not pay attention until something like 2008 happened, which really shed a lot of lights on the tail risk. And I just mentioned that if you continue to use traditional risk measures, such as volatility, uh, it significantly underestimates risk, particularly the tail risk. Mm -hmm. um, and we've all heard the term probably fat tails, uh, black swan, and, and this is what um, we're talking about basically um, a small probability event, um, but have a, a very a large negative return consequences. And so exactly like 2008 and 2009. Um, first of all, you know, in terms of how to deal with that and how to incorporate into your investment decisions, uh, first of all, you have to uh, find the a better measure than the traditional volatility and so forth to measure the tail risk correctly. Mm. And uh, there's many different measures um, uh, in practice. For example, uh, uh, in some of the work I've participated in, uh, we suggested investors looking at uh, distributions such as truncated levy flight distribution, which model the tail risk uh, much better. So that's the first step. Uh, you need to understand how big the tail is, how fat the tail is, uh, and what's the probability, what's the consequences. Once you have a good modeling, uh, the second step is to incorporate that into your, um, your allocation decision. Figure out how you can uh, combine different asset class, help you enhance return, but also help you uh, mitigate the risk. You cannot remove the risk. You know, uh, as a market participant, there's always some risk in the market, uh, but you can certainly mitigate that. And that specifically depends on um, your risk profile and your preferences. Um, there are certain asset classes that um, we find that once you incorporate fat tail into the distribution, uh, into the analysis, uh, you may want to uh, reduce your allocation compared to uh, uh, before. Uh, asset classes such as high yield um, certainly can produce um, a, a you know higher return compared to traditional bonds, but besides the the uh, the higher volatility, 
they all tend, they also tend to have a much higher fat tail. Um, so th that's just for example. The mean variance framework has largely given way to models that include downside risk measures like semivariance and conditional value at risk. Could you talk a bit about the latest developments in this sure, area? Sure, sure. I just uh, uh, illustrated that, that you know the second step is to piece all of these things together, um, take into fat tails into consideration in your allocation decision or security selection decision. Um, there's many techniques you can use. Uh, like I mentioned, you can use the truncated levy flight distribution to help you measure the downside. In terms of uh, how do we evaluate the risk return trade-offs of a combination of different security and asset classes, um, we certainly feel mean variance is no longer enough. It might not be a bad starting point to get you started, uh, but certainly at this day and age, uh, you should look beyond mean and variance when you are making these uh, investment decisions. Um, you mentioned semi-deviation. That's certainly a measure that uh, some people use. Um, we also look at conditional value at risk, uh, which is uh, a more comprehensive measure, uh, not just measure the, the, the probability of downside, but also measure the magnitude of the downside. So mm -hmm. in some sense, it measures the entire tail uh, mm -hmm. risk, mm -hmm. uh, take entire tail risk into consideration. Within the broad equity asset class, we have some of these so-called market anomalies relating to small cap stocks, value stocks, and momentum stocks, which presumably generally offer higher expected return over the long term. Should investors look to taking advantage of these sources of return? Well, uh, the way um, you know investors should look at them, instead of looking at them as a market anomaly, uh, the way to correctly looking at them, uh, I believe, is these are uh, risk factors, uh, just like stock market uh, is a risk factor um, compared to a bond market. Um, equity ha inherently has more risk uh, than, than bond, and therefore investors get compensated over time um, by the equity risk premiums. Um, small cap value stock, like you mentioned, are additional risk factors in addition to the market uh, risk. And just like the market risk, uh, uh, investors over time get compensated by uh, taking uh, or getting exposure to those risks. There's certainly downside as well. You know, uh, over time, that small cap and value tends to outperform, um, but they, they inherently also have more risk because they're, they're, um, they're, they're additional risk factors. So, mm -hmm. so in some sense, um, you can think of the market is consists of multiple risk factors. You have a market risk factor, you have a small risk factor, you have a value-based um, risk factor. And, and from an investor's perspective, um, by smartly combining these, uh, constructing a portfolio can help them achieve uh, better returns over time uh, without significantly increase their risk. How about implementation and trading? Can you talk a bit about these issues, which presumably could be quite important in adding value to the portfolio management process? You know, Samuel, I'm really glad you, know, you brought that up because oftentimes you know, we talk about the exciting stuff, right? Uh, you know, which asset class is going to do well, which <laughs> yeah, stock is right. going to do well. Um, but just as with everything, you know, the execution, the implementation part is a huge part of uh, value creation or avoid leakage in your return. 
And, and for investors, they really need to pay attention to um, how efficient, uh, you know, not only how good an idea is, but also how can the idea be, be efficiently implemented uh, in a low-cost, consistent uh, manner. And, 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 and oftentimes, that's where the biggest value can be added or subtracted, depends on how you implement it. Uh, and so um, uh, that's a huge area of value added, not only because there, uh, you know, um, uh, there is value, but also because um, compared to picking stocks or compared to figuring out which asset class is going to do better, uh, these are areas that actually, uh, if you study, it's not that, you know, it's, it's relatively certain that you can add a lot of value, if, if I can put it that way, mm-hmm. versus stocks and, 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 and um, uh, picking stocks or picking asset classes inherently, um, you know, if you look at historical empirical data, more than half, sometimes 70, 75% of the managers or investors actually lose money, uh, you know, by picking stocks or picking asset classes. Uh, so we believe that every investor should uh, be very um, uh, prudent and, and careful in terms of how to implement their portfolio um, and, and take advantage of what the market provides them and, and add value in a much more uh, uh, sure, uh, you know, confident way uh, mm-hmm. in those segments. Mm-hmm. I understand that you have spent some time studying the wealth management landscape in the Asia-Pacific recently. What are some of the key observations and takeaways that you can share with us? Yeah. I, I think, you know, uh, the, the Asian wealth uh, management market is, has a lot of potential uh, from an industry or a business perspective. Uh, first of all, uh, as an investor's group, um, uh, Asia investors tends to be net savers compared to many other uh, countries and places. So the amount of wealth that's being preserved and saved uh, is quite significant. There's actually statistics I've read um, uh, showing that uh, about two-thirds of all the wealth that's being generated in the mm-hmm. world is mm-hmm. from the, the, you know, the, the Asia-Pacific uh, region. So, uh, so certainly a lot of wealth is being generated. Um, where I think the challenge are is that um, there, as an industry, there, there's where it's lacking is really uh, what I would say, you know, objective and solid investment advice, particularly to individual investors. Too often, you know, I find individual investors um, end up fall into the behavior trap that we see over and over again. Uh, what does that mean? They trade too often. They try to chase winners, mm-hmm. uh, and they try to um, you know hold on to losers. Um, and what happened is that if you look at studies, and and uh, you know one of the study by uh, uh, Professor Terry Odin from uh, University of Berkeley mm-hmm. has shown that that Asian investors, mm-hmm. uh, because they're more active in terms of trading, and 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 chasing winners, um, they actually underperform a simple buy and hold strategy by three to four percentage point a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a lot of returns that investors are giving away. So coming back, I feel like um, if we can get some objective and, and, and good advice to investors, 
um, uh, as a wealth management as an industry in Asia, uh, we can significantly improve uh, investors, uh, uh, you know, outcome, investment outcome. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what excites me and that's what excites uh, Dimensional uh, to come into this market. Dr. Chen, thank you for sharing your thoughts on asset allocation, portfolio management, and the wealth management landscape in the Asia Pacific with us today. Thank you. And thank you for joining us for this episode of the CFA Institute Take 15 series. Copyright 2012 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.